Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Ayelet Waldman. She's a novelist and an essayist and a former federal public defender who taught at Loyola and UC Berkeley schools of law. Her latest book, A Really Good Day, is an honest account of her month-long experience microdosing on LSD after a ton of research into the practice and potential psychological benefits of taking sub-perceptual doses of the chemical. Spoiler, overall, it helped her. The book also digs into the history and ramifications of the criminalization of psychoactive drugs. Welcome to Think Again, Ayelet. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you could make it. Um, so I found your book really, really interesting, and I guess I, I, I think for the audience we should probably, even though you've probably done this a hundred times, we should probably just give the overview, like why this experiment, you know, what led you to it, and sort of the general, your general impressions of how, how it went. I, you know, the, the short answer is desperation led me to it. I have a mood disorder, and my mood disorder is closely linked to hormonal changes. And when you hit your 40s or when you're a woman, your hormones just kind of go out of whack. Right. I mean, it's, you know, menopause usually comes sometime in the 50s, but in the years leading up to menopause, you have these kind of hormonal fluctuations that if you are someone like me who was taking a specific, I had something called PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which basically meant like hellish PMS. And I was taking a week of antidepressants right before my period, and that controlled my mood disorder beautifully. But when I could no longer predict my periods, I couldn't take my medication at the right time, my moods just plummeted, I got more and more depressed, and eventually I became suicidal, and I was desperately looking for something to make me feel better. And I had been reading all this research about LSD and other psychedelic drugs, and their the effect on mood and on specifically depression and anxiety, and I thought, you know what, maybe this will help. I mean, I don't have a formally diagnosed mood disorder, but I could relate to a lot of the things that you were talking about in the book in terms of like irritability and reactivity right. and just, I you love know. the way clinicians call it irritability. They say irritability, and it sounds like, oh, you're just a little irritable. What it really means is you want to like decapitate the person standing in front of you in the Starbucks line. Right, and you, at least the way you describe it in the book, it sounds like your situation was pretty intense with like, yeah. hum, you know, screaming and yelling and in yeah. the car and so on. Not interfering as like in the clinical sense, interfering no. with your job and so no. forth, but kind of screwing up relationships. And yeah. I related very much to the desire to get rid of kind of self-recrimination, uh -huh. re reactivity, the tendency to like yell at my kid, you know, right. which I got from my mother, you know. Totally. Yeah. I mean, look, these things get passed down, right? I mean, right. they get passed down and they get passed down genetically. You know, my family has, a, has an incredibly elaborate history of mood disorders. The Lithium River runs wide and okay. swift through the Waldman family tree. But, um, but it also gets passed down because that's how, if you know, my mother yelled at me all the time when I was a little girl. Right. And it's really hard not to reenact those old systems. Scripts or whatever. And, yeah. and it, what's really interesting about LSD is that that's what it's really about. It's about interrupting those old scripts. And I didn't necessarily understand that when I went into it. Right. I was more like thinking, maybe this is a more effective Zoloft. Maybe this is a more effective Prozac. Okay. But 
what it has is the ability to enhance neuroplasticity, which means the, the way that your brain grows and changes. And right. a neuroplastic brain is a good brain, a brain that can get out of the ruts of typical behavior and usual responses. That's the kind of brain you want. And that's what I found most striking and unusual about this experiment is that, like, I mean, take Twitter. Right. The typical I yell at response to <laughs> seeing a tweet from, say, Donald Trump is to get furious and write an obscenity-laden reply and, like, put it right up on the internet. And during this period of microdosing, I might see a tweet that enraged me. Right. And then I would have this moment where I thought, wait a minute, you think you're angry, but like, what are you really feeling? Are you feeling scared? Are you feeling threatened? Right. Are you feeling ashamed? And I would sort of parse out my emotions so I actually understood them. And then I would have the impulse to act, you know, send the angry reply. But I would say to myself, like, okay, is that gonna make things better or worse? Right. That is not a question I normally ask. That's not a question I'd ask before I yelled at my kid, before I yelled at my husband, before I sent off an angry email. And just to have a minute to say, is that going to make it better or worse? That was life altering. So I get the sense that you are a person, like, and I think you kind of say this in the book in some places, that you're a person where part of your identity has been built around honesty, like built around, yeah. it's like trying to say what you mean and not be right. too guarded, I guess, about yeah. it. Although that's also like kind of my mental illness, right? Right, like, so I guess that's exactly? what I'm saying. Like, you know, does that then, does that then kind of screw with your sense of identity when suddenly you have to be more reflective or like, you know, if you're, if you're used to kind of considering it as a positive value to say what you say right. what that's, comes to uh, mind. That's a really interesting question that I haven't been asked before, but that's actually super <laughs> insightful. Yeah, you know, it's so hard to distinguish personality from disease, really, right, right. because I actually do believe that it's important to be honest and that, you know, in a post-truth world, I mean, we're seeing the ramifications of a post-truth yeah. world right now, and that radical honesty can, can be incredibly important. But there's a way that honesty, it tips into pathology. So, for example, here's like, I really believe with all my heart, and the truth that I tell is that before I began this experiment, my marriage was in deep, deep trouble. Right. That I was gonna get divorced, that my husband was gonna leave me because it was insufferable, I was insufferable and it was intolerable living with me. So Michael says, that's my disease talking, that he wasn't going anywhere, but that it was because I felt so unlovable that I imagined that he was leaving. So like my perspective was skewed, so what that I, f I felt like something was radical honesty, but it was actually just an expression of this skewed yeah. perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that being said, it's not like I became this super guarded, reflective person. I just became slightly more reflective. And I made the decision to publish this book, which some people might think was crazy. Like, you're gonna tell people, my last book was a novel about the Holocaust. You know who my audiences were? Like, picture the JCC. Yeah, yeah. That was my audience. My grandparents, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, now I'm saying to my audience, you have your grandparents, hey, Bubby and Zeta, come read this book now about LSD, eh, you know? But so on the one hand, that might have been like, that might be an example of poor judgment. On the other hand, when I, I actually weighed the pros and cons, I didn't just say, yeah, I'm gonna publish this. I said like, what is your larger goal here? Do you have a larger goal? Because right. just publishing a book about you and acid, that's, that, doesn't have a, that doesn't serve a purpose. Right. And then the book that I wrote ended up being an expression of this larger purpose, which is, you know, advocating for an end to the destructive war on drugs, advocating to a re-examination of the way that we think about psychedelics, you know, more testing, more research, more medical exploration. 
Yeah. If I could just be a tiny bit more reflective in my day to day, then I'll still be me. I just won't be like me full of shame. And that's really what I want. I took a you know, number of psychedelics in college, not in this kind of microdose way, but in the like proper dose way. Macrodose yeah, way? Yeah, macrodose. You macrodosed um, your balls off? Yeah, okay. I mean, well, you know, I'm not really, like I didn't drop out of college and follow the Grateful Dead right. everywhere. It was actually always very controlled and reflective. And I had a right. kind of ideology about it from the beginning, which was that it wasn't to be fucked with. Like you, right. you, you sat down with somebody you trusted and the idea was to have an insightful right. experience. Right. And I did that with LSD and I did that with, you know, shrooms and yeah, and it was, and it, you know, it was wonderful. I mean, I remember those experiences, you know, among the very profound experiences of my life, but there was always this issue or question of like, well, then what? Like, how do you, how do you get back there? Right. And so when it comes to this issue of neuroplasticity on microdosing, I want to, I guess I want to ask two questions. One, does it last if you stop? Because uh, you did stop at 30. Yes. Well, I guess that's really the question. I guess, like, what is, what's your post-experiment experience? Like, you know, now it's been how long? I, can't, I won't tell you. Okay. Let's just say that the statute of limitations for the possession of LSD is three years, and I feel safe. Okay. Okay, so here's, let's talk first research and then personal yeah, 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 experience. Yeah, okay. So from the research perspective, there's really fascinating research going on uh, with psilocybin and, and people who are experiencing, people have fatal illnesses and who are right. experiencing anxiety and depression and fear at the prospect of death. Right. And why are those people being studied? Not because there's something unique about the ex depression and anxiety experienced by people facing the end of their lives, but because it's a lot easier to get FDA and DEA permission to study people who are dying than it is to get permission to give healthy people psilocybin. Why are they using psilocybin and not LSD? They're essentially identical, the, ex the subjective experience. But because psilocybin doesn't have the same connotation in the mind of the public that LSD does. It right. doesn't have that sort of negative baggage. That research seems to indicate that a single or two curated psilocybin trips, like with the same intentionality that you describe, right. that those have long, far-reaching ramifications. That the people who did those trips ended up having, for lack of a better phrase, a really good death. That they achieved some kind of peace with the prospect of dying that lasted beyond the six to eight hours of the trip. Right. And that's actually been Many people who've had, like you, LSD trips, psilocybin trips, have described insights that have lasted into their lives. Mm. So, you know, whether that's because they have a spiritual experience, they really do understand their place in the universe as part of a oneness and the totality, right. whether that's because there's a brain change, we don't really know, but we do know that there seems to be some lingering effect. So, in my case, you know, these very small doses I do not believe that there is a metabolic change that lasts. I know for a fact that if it was legal, I would still be doing it. Hmm. This medication, and I call it that because I used it as a medicine, worked better for me than the billion other medications that have been prescribed for me. Right. So when I stopped using it, I stopped feeling the effects. But 
there was a lasting outcome, and I have been trying really hard to parse that out. So first of all, it catalyzed an end to a very profound depression, the most profound, the most serious depression of my life. Okay. But when you have a cyclical mood disorder, you go in and out of depressions. So that may not be my last depression. Maybe it is. Maybe like I'm gonna never be bipolar or PMDD again once I stop completely stop getting my period. I might be I might be the Dalai Lama. I don't, know. <laughs> don't hold your breath. <laughs> it is likely that I will exper experience another plummeting of mood. But whether it was because the change in mood was so immediate, one day to the next, one day I was suicidal, the next day I had equanimity, and it was that sudden, right. whether it was just the fact of the immediacy of that transition, or whether it has something to do with an actual effect of microdosing on my brain, there has, I have had slightly more capacity to be less reactive. Not always. Right. And I gotta say, the past few months have challenged my equanimity tremendously. I mean, you know, I think it's sort of trite to say and everybody's laughing, but like it, it has been really hard for people since Trump was elected. That kind of shook a lot of people's sense of what was possible in the world. If you're like me, a lawyer who believes somehow in the perfectibility of the republic and the beauty of the constitution, the fact that we elected a monster who believes in neither is terrifying. If you're a person of color yeah. or an immigrant, like nobody expected say, you know, some of the things that have been happening now. Nobody expected that individuals with green cards would suddenly find themselves at risk. And that fear and anxiety and instability has engendered a lot of, you know, fear and anxiety and instability in people. Right. So it has been, but I feel it's pretty amazing to me how stable I've been since Trump's election. And I don't know that I would have been this stable had I not had that microdose experience in my past. Interesting. I'm yeah, gonna I need more though. <laughs> like if this is going to continue yeah, much yeah, longer, yeah. my like beautiful decision not to microdose again is going to be seriously challenged. This is what I was going to ask you about because in the book, you know, you also talk about using MDMA, you know, with your husband and that that's been like a very positive kind right. of empathogen right. in helping you guys to connect as a couple over the years and talk through things and just be a happy couple. And that's illegal. Yeah. So, so why you, did I, so was yeah, I not so, willing to do this? Yeah, I mean, you're an attorney, and certainly yeah. you had clients who got busted for, you know, yeah. even minor promising to buy drugs right. unwittingly. Yeah. Well, yeah. what's up with there are a yeah. couple of reasons. Like, okay. so first of all, um, there's a difference between occasional and constant use. And when I made the decision to write this book, which I did not because I wanted to like share my LSD experience, but right. because I really do believe that there's, I have a larger purpose here. I believe that the war on drugs has been a, a calamity for this country, and I want to be part of the, the discussion about ending it. And I believe that mental illness, we don't think rationally about mental illness in this country or the world, and I want to be part of that discussion too. But when I made the decision to write the book, I knew that I couldn't keep microdosing. One, because you lose your authority if you're committing a crime, and two, because I'm frankly afraid. I mean, before the election, it was maybe an irrational fear. Before the election, the, de the Department of Justice had real crimes that it was right, worrying about. Right. But Jeff Sessions is an old-time drug warrior of the oldest school and believes that no good person has ever smoked marijuana and you know, made a quote-unquote joke about how the KKK, he thought the KKK was fine until he found out that they liked the devil weed. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, right. Um, I wonder a, how much he drinks, but. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and, right. you know, <laughs> it, 
there's the sort of irrational fear. Like his list is long. The people he's going to attack, the you know immigrants, right. uh, Mexican immigrants, undocumented workers, people with green cards, Drug you know African Americans. Lower. I'm like lower. I'm yeah. you know, but he may get to me, but it'll be a long time. <laughs> So that's the sort of irrational part of it. But the rational part of it is I just don't feel comfortable breaking the law consistently. Well, and you'll be interviewed and people will say, are you right. still using? Yeah, and then you'll Ooh, be admi I'm admitting out, you know? to a crime. Yeah, off. over and over yeah, and over yeah, yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted to be able to yeah. talk about it from a place of security right. and also from a place of reason. I understand. Um, the MDMA, like I'm not a big recreational drug user. Right. Like I think I say in the book that um, I've used drugs more than some people my age, less than Presidents Obama and Bush. But MDMA, I, my husband and I use it every few years because we, it, was, it was suggested to us by Sasha Shulgan, this old, he's now dead, but he was a, a chemist who bioassayed different chemicals and ingested them. So while he's not the first, the first person to invent MDMA to synthesize right. it, that was Merck, the pharmaceutical company. Sasha's one of the first people who like slugged it down and realized what it was able to do. Gotcha. But the thing about MDMA for my husband and me is that it's had this remarkable sort of counseling effect. We only use it when we feel like our relationship needs a reboot. We use mm -hmm. it, I tell people like, we just, we take it and then we talk about our problems from a place of love and peace for six hours, which to a lot of people, like especially a lot of men, sounds like hell on wheels, <laughs> but it's actually really great for a marriage. I think you say in the book, in fact, yeah, you say in the book that if that sounds like you know, your absolute worst nightmare, then probably you're the one that needs to do it most. Right. <laughs> like if you're in a relationship and you don't want to talk about the relationship, maybe you need to take some MDMA. Right. But like my big message to my kids is I have a very, I have, you know, I think the most radical message it's sort of thing in my book is my my harm reduction approach to parenting and drugs. Yeah, let's talk about That's that. That's the thing that I think scares most people. I have only one consideration when it comes to my children and drugs. I want to keep them safe. Right. Like my message is do not die. And that's a really serious message nowadays. I mean, we are in the midst of an opioid crisis. So when I send my kids out the door, I don't, I'm not like drive safe because they're probably just going to take a lift. My message is use a condom and test your molly because that's how I'm going to keep them safe and that's how I'm going to keep them from dying. Right. Marijuana, for example, our marijuana policy is not an ideal one. I believe that adolescent use of marijuana is there there has been research that shows that it doesn't that it doesn't have a great effect on the developing brain. That's right. That it's been linked to decreases in IQ and that it would it would actually be ideal if you didn't smoke pot until you were done growing, until you had your frontal lobe intact sometime in your twenties. But I'm not an idiot. I know that my kids, we live in Berkeley. My kids are going to smoke pot. Right. So the compromise we reached with our kids was you can start smoking pot, but only after you turn 15, which is a good five years before I wish I could say it. But, sure. And you can only use it on weekends. And if your grades drop, you are grounded from weed, and I will test your pee. And I even once <laughs> did take it a jar of pee from my son way more Turns out when you say pee in a jar, they fill the whole jar. <laughs> Way more, but like, but you know, and it was mostly just to show them that I would do it. Right. So that's a harm reduction based approach. Like I'm trying to reduce the harm associated with marijuana as much as is reasonable. I'm much more draconian when it comes to alcohol. I tell my kids, you know, nobody got raped hanging out with a bunch of stone dudes, but a lot of people get raped hanging out with a bunch of drunk guys. So I feel like if, my message on alcohol is just please don't. 
this is the thing about the term drugs, and you talk a bit about like the DARE program right. back in the 80s, 80s, was 90s. it? 90s, yeah. Into the 2000s. And, you know, like, this is your brain on drugs. And there's this great moment in your book where you say that, like, you know, a seven-year-old looks at that and is like, oh, God, I don't, my brain is going to be like an egg frying. I don't want to ever do any drugs. And a 15-year-old looks at that and goes, okay, well, I know a lot of people who smoke pot and their brain isn't fried, so. Right, they're on the honor roll at yeah, Yale. Yeah, so. exactly. So I'm not listening to anything this nonsense right. says. And, and, and D.A.R.E. is actually correlated. Exposure to the D.A.R.E. program specifically right. in its old, in its original form, was actually correlated with higher drug use among kids. Why? Because as soon as they figured out you were, um, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, yeah. As soon as they figured out you were bullshitting them about weed, then they didn't trust you about anything. They didn't trust you about meth. They didn't trust right. you about heroin. So you have to be honest with adolescents. They are truth-telling machines. They know when you are lying to them. And the only right. way to approach, you know, like a sensible approach to drugs with your children is not to lie to them. And you would be amazed at how infrequently that message manages to get through. I have sat in Berkeley, California, mm. in rooms full of parents who I know, I like saw them at the Grateful Dead con, well, I didn't go to Grateful Dead, but like, <laughs> I know these were big stoners. I know they're still stoners. And they're talking about like, how are we gonna keep our kids from you know succumbing to peer pressure? As if that's why kids use drugs. Like right. as if that's why kids smoke weed, because of peer pressure. Most kids smoke weed because they're curious about weed. And if you have, you know, I, I was just this past week on this texting round robin with a bunch of parents about like whether our 10th grade daughters would could go to this party where there were no grown-ups. And our rule has always been that I have to talk to the parent and I don't like you going to those big parties with a lot of kids. Just And it's mostly because of alcohol. Right. But I had like sussed out. My my older daughter had actually checked out this party, decided it was safe. And all these parents were texting and one dad said, I don't want this night to be the first night that my daughter smokes pot. And before I could stop myself, I didn't have that, <laughs> I just texted back and I said, too late, dude. Because I know his kid has smoked pot. And like, if you live in that world of denial, you can't be rational when it comes to your children. You don't want them to lie right. to you. You want them to feel comfortable telling you the truth so that if a kid is in trouble, which has happened, like my kids have come to me and they've said, that kid, mom, we know he's using heroin. What do we do? And then that kid's in danger of dying and then we can help that kid. Yeah, I mean, the problem is that misinformation, disinformation, denial, all of it, affects everybody negatively. I mean, like Absolutely. kids, you know, on the one hand, as you say, like some kids are just going to go out and try things because they're curious and they're going to see through the bullshit of the ad campaign. Other kids are going to have sort of delusional notions right. about what one drug does versus another. You know, you talk in the book about how you know, your ideas about LSD, like that if you took it once, you might jump out a window. You right. know, that you absorbed some of that. Right. I like, totally, I was like know. a drug policy reform advocate. I was a consultant. <laughs> I wrote Supreme Court briefs on issues of drug policy. And I believe that if you did LSD eight times, you'd go crazy. Right. And my husband was like, oh yeah, dude, do I seem crazy to you? <laughs> Yeah. What my husband always said about his LSD, I haven't actually taken a mac macro dose, right. but my husband always said about his LSD experiences was that it was profound and incredible and life-altering, and then it was six more hours. Yeah, uh, mushrooms last about half the time. Right. So, right. Um, I guess, you know, the last thing I want to uh, kind of come back to before we continue is this, this idea that I thought was really interesting about identity which is that, you know, like the way that pathology can become identity, the way that like 
we're very careful about the things that we will or will not do to ourselves, and often that has to do with our idea of, of who we are. Like, I'm a person who is in control, or I'm a person blah, right. blah, blah. But like often that makes us vulnerable to misleading information. We, we're somehow all okay, most of us are okay with accepting alcohol as the kind right. of casual drug to loosen up. Um, and more and more marijuana too. I mean, I, I don't know about here in New York, but now that recreational use of marijuana is legal, and even when medical use was, it was pretty ubiquitous. I mean, yeah. and most people don't have a problem with someone at a party smoking weed, usually. I don't know, yeah, I'm from the East Coast, and like things are a little, a little, tighter little weirder yeah, around yeah. here. I mean, look, I mean, not around like most York, of right. the folks I know, but but yeah, there are still a lot of people out here who are just kind of like, that is a drug. It's so funny. And it's funny. just so weird, like that's a drug. Like you are willing to drink three martinis and that is not a drug. Right. I mean, that's just, it's just so obviously When crazy. I taught this seminar at yeah. Bolt Hall at the law school at UC, UC Berkeley, the first thing I did with every class was I went in the first day of class, of every, I taught for seven sem semesters, and I wrote up on the board, I put three categories, drug, food, medicine. And I said, all right, people, start naming things, and let's put them in the right category. And at first it was super easy, Tylenol, let's put that in medicine. And, and then I would say, okay, what about caffeine? Okay, well, caffeine is a food, right. but it's also a drug. Like, it, once you actually start thinking about things, it's very hard to figure out what category they go in, because the truth is they can go in any category, and it all depends, as everything does when it comes to drugs, right. on set and setting. The set is you, the setting is the situation you're in, and that kind of defines the experience. Yeah, and, you know, and we are so... W those categories work at such a deep level in our, in, you know, cognitively that like that we can it can be explained to us that well actually alcohol is a drug and we can still be like yeah yeah that some part of our brain right. is like that's nice but that's not so but, bad but it's not a drug right you know right and like, when alcohol is actually so much worse for you <laughs> right. than you know right just it's kind of discount logic because that's how we learn you know that was I the, know. it's really it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, I think that, you know, it's like, just as my grandmother used to say, all things in moderation, that's really the sort of overriding measure, or like, that, that's the best advice anyone has ever given me. If you can sure. moderate your impulses, if you can moderate your intake, if you can moderate, you are less inclined to get in trouble, except I am like, not a moderating person. I mean, <laughs> I'm a big, I have a big personality, I make big mistakes, and I have big joys, and so... That is always my struggle, how to be a, uh, an immoderate person who knows that moderation will help her. Right. And yet you are in some ways. I mean, you, were, you talk about yourself as pretty risk averse and yeah, probably, like you didn't ways. macro dose no, on LSD no. ever. I don't want to see that part. <laughs> like the situation that I would need to be feel safe doing a regular sized LSD trip, like the infrastructure, <laughs> the coziness of the room and you my need to husband, be in a formal study right? and like, I would need something. like six yeah. doctors in white coats with big <laughs> syringes full of Valium so that the minute I started, I don't know, like vomiting black rats. <laughs> They could just immediately, you know, pump me full of a of a detoxifying agent. Yeah, I don't know that there is ever a scenario where I would feel safe and secure with a regular trip. I just feel like bad trips were invented to, like, I am the ultimate in bad trip persons. Yeah, I mean, bad trips, you know, as you point out in the book, are sometimes just a matter of 
whatever the underlying neurosis the right. person is, you know, it, that most defines the person coming to the fore. Right. And like that can have a therapeutic benefit. Totally. I mean, I think right most setting. people would agree that the most therapeutically valid and uh, interesting psychedelics experiences are ones that can't be described as like fun. That right. they're challenging and they, you know, get to some the heart of some fear and anxiety and that's not fun but it's it can be really profoundly life-altering that's right yeah mine were never unmediated fun and I was always pretty serious about it <laughs> not watching Pink Floyd's The Wall although right. that's kind of serious and intense too I suppose but anyway um, shall we shall we move on to the second part yeah let's we watch, watch the, the surprise movies. videos yeah little little uh, super fun movies of people talking the first one okay oh Andrew Solomon I love so this him. is Andrew Solomon the key to good parenting, empathy. Well, this is this is within things you've talked about before. Sure. Okay. A lot of the time, parents are profoundly unprepared for the differences that their children will manifest. And they experience those differences almost as some kind of an assault on them and on the integrity of their household. And then they need to make the leap to thinking, if my child is different in this way, not only does my child have an identity as a deaf person or a dwarf, I have an identity as the parent of a deaf person or as the parent of a dwarf. The parents have to go well outside of their comfort zone. This wasn't an identity that they sought. This wasn't an identity that they wanted, uh, but it is fundamental to their identity. So I think of the mother of Dylan Klebold, one of the perpetrators of the Columbine massacre, and how she described to me being on a train and starting to talk to a stranger. And she said, and I knew I had to tell him who I am, and who I am forever now is Dylan's mother. There's a sense that these parents are profoundly changed by the identity conditions they confront. There's a sense that the child has to learn an identity, but the parents also have to learn an identity, an identity as the parents of this child. And often, the child leads them in strange directions, and it's a, a substitution, it's a new reality for them. And the adjustment, the shock of that, can be incredibly difficult. It forces them well outside of their comfort zone. And in the process of getting outside of their comfort zone and listening and expanding in those ways, they realize how to be empathetic with their own children. And that is the cornerstone of being a good parent. <laughs> so delightful. That's. I mean, I don't. He's. His name is Solomon. How does he have like such a goyish, elegant accent? I love. I think him he's talk. Oxford educated. Yeah, it's actually. beautiful. So that's sort of a his British. He sounds so much smarter. Maybe <laughs> if we didn't speak like we were from Jersey, we wouldn't. You know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by, by, happily, I'm using the happily, royal way. Happily, Jewish people have also penetrated the UK. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, that's so fascinating. I, uh, first of all, his book about parenthood is one of the most exhilarating, exciting, and fascinating books I've ever read. And I think it, you know, I have four kids, okay. and they're 13, 15, 19, and 22. Yeah. And one of the most amazing things about being a parent for me has been this fundamental misunderstanding that I experienced. Like, I, for so long, I viewed my kids, not consciously, but unconsciously, as extensions of myself. Right. Like, they were me. So that when they were in pain, I was in pain. When they experienced something, 
I experienced something. And and the process of like disentangling that is the challenge of parenthood. I mean, it begins, I remember the first time one of my kids said they didn't want me to see them naked. Mm. And I was like, wait a minute, but that's my, I, that's my body. <laughs> that's my, like, what do you mean I can't <laughs> see, touch, squeeze, kiss? I mean, that's mine. Right. And it was such a fascinating, like, you know, disentanglement. And the same thing is true about like, the first time one of my kids made a really serious mistake. And it panicked me. It like I remember feeling so terrified. And then I had to sit back and say, wait a minute, this is her life. And making mistakes is part of how she grows, but it's also part of how she distinguishes herself from me. And I want her to make mistakes. I want her to live her life in accordance with her own values and her own desires and not mine. But it was so painful that's, and so that, hard to let that happen. Does it, I mean, that, you know, my son is nine and I, I imagine that it's a little different when they're younger than when they're older only because when they're younger you are under the probably false illusion that you have more input power. I mean, I, I, I talked with, um, Alison Gopnik, who's a oh, developmental psychologist so from yeah Berkeley, and and she was saying that basically like you have a lot less input than you think, right. like even from the very beginning, right. like the best you can do in most cases is not to fuck them up, like, right? Exactly, you know. And um, I okay, so I'm gonna go on to like personal anecdote, and then we'll see where we go from here. But like I am currently struggling with the fact that my son loves these YouTube videos that seem, he's a super smart kid. Right. And I think I have that like ego involvement where I feel like we're intellectually connected in right, some way. Right. And, he's and some the YouTube extension videos are stupid. Of my are intellect. Stupid? And they're incredibly uh, yeah. stupid. You know, they're this, they're these two guys that talk about Minecraft. They're a guy and his wife. And they're like, oh, oh, oh. and it's like just the worst kind of fart humor or whatever. Right. And he's super smart. And, and there's this part of me that's like in denial and wants to steer him. You know, I let him watch it. I don't, I don't stop him. But I, there's a lot of guilt bound up with the fact that I don't want him to like that. Right. And I you can't like, stop it. Like, and that's so, <laughs> so about you. Okay, so here's the flip side yeah, of that. Yeah. When my son was about six, yeah. we were in London and we went to the Tate Modern and there was this installation by the young Tate Prize winners. And one of them was this, this you know, performance artist named Spartacus Chetwin. Great name, right? Yeah. So my little boy, like, assimilated her name and a lot of disdain for her work. And then later that, like a couple of months later, was at a party with a bunch of adults, many of them visual artists, and he made a very intelligent derogatory comment about the work of Spartacus Chetwin. <laughs> okay. And I flew on that for, I was like, yes, that is genius because <laughs> I created genius. The truth is, from his perspective, that was no different than the Minecraft idiot. Like his subjective, he like learned that name just like your kid learned the name of the Minecraft person and there's no difference. One doesn't, you know, exhibit deep intelligence right, or right. one and one doesn't exhibit. It just, a, it, it resonated with your right. own and expectations. It, exactly, or. and it makes you feel, it's like a, it's such a pure reflection on you. Yeah, yeah. My kid is obsessed with fashion and specifically that same kid with labels. And like, I'm super, I hate anything that smacks of 
Like my trigger, like we're always talking about our triggers around my house because we live in Berkeley. <laughs> my trigger is entitlement. So anything that exhibits entitlement. So if he wants a Gosha t-shirt that costs $180 and he saves up his money and uses his bar mitzvah money or the money he makes like organizing people's drawers because he has a little OCD and buys that t-shirt, I hate it. Because I feel like, why do you value that? That's just a piece of crappy t-shirt that has a logo on it. And aren't you smarter than the logo upside, you know? And, but then like. And that's a core value for you. And yeah. you want to, you want, you're, there's a part of you that wants want, him to exactly. have that Exactly, like value. why yeah. didn't you assimilate these values that, but like, you know, being different from one's parents is the job of childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. I mean, that, that's what you're doing. You are, becoming a separate entity. Right. It's painful for us. It's but it's it's that's what that's what it means to grow up. And you know And to I, love your child. To lo I exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like if you do this job right, you end up in an unrequited love affair. You end up loving a person who loves someone else more than they love you. Like you don't want your son pushing your wheelchair around fairway in 65 years being like daddy daddy are we gonna buy you know right, right, right? right. you no. want your son with a partner and i like you know we're jewish a family and you want like that's what you want you want that person to love someone more than you it's such a weird phenomenon that like that's your job to love someone so much that you fulfill some asinine poster from 1972 if you love him, let it go. It's hard, yeah. It's hard, though, man. I mean, I'm still sort of delusional in the belief that, like, we're going to be just, like, chatting, you know, intellectually as grand. Maybe we will. You know, maybe we'll have great deep phone calls about some book he's read. That may happen. But, like, the idea that somehow that's going to be an ongoing essential right. relationship in his life, which it may or may not be. So you know? like I take this up to a point, yeah. like I have one rule in, you know, in, I always say to the kids, genetic diversity is your friend. Like Jews, we are way too inbred. Michael and I come from like the same part of Galicia. That is bad news <laughs> from a genetic perspective. Right. So I'm always saying to the kids, diversify, 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 <laughs> go out, find people of other countries, nations, races with which to multiply, with which to multiply. <laughs> but like the one thing is, you know, one of those kids brings home like a Republican in today's Republican. You, that's, that's going to be a problem. That yeah, will be the yeah, ultimate yeah, yeah. challenge. If yeah, one yeah. of them said, like, you know, I really believe in, you know, that Lord wanted a man and a woman. To, I, I, my, uh, that, my, that's my line in the sand. Chris like, Rock. Chris Rock said once, and I think he was talking about like, you know, interracial couples, right. and you know, he said. It doesn't make sense to hate anybody because whoever you hate will end up in your family. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh god, I'm so fucked. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I'm with you though on the cognitive dissonance of like, I can't deal with the idea, like I, I cannot fundamentally wrap my mind around the fact that anybody could think that Donald Trump is somebody that could run America. And so the idea of having that in my family is is terrifying. But you know, my, I, but, my but youngest that may son, be the ultimate test. Right, exactly. Know. My youngest son was very anxious after the election, which is totally my fault. First of all, I promised him that Trump wasn't going to win. And I also made it clear that Trump's victory could be the world's the worst thing that ever happens in this country. So he was understandably tremendously anxious right. when on election night. Um, I remember election night, my daughter was at college and she texted me. She says, she texts, Daddy says everything's going to be okay. And I texted back, Daddy is deluded. 
great. All right, so, but my son so, said to me. So you guys are me, on the same page. Yeah. Know, that that uh, solidarity parenting there. Exactly. Like, you know, like, <laughs> um, my son said the next day, look, we need to give him a chance. He's the president. And I came down on him like a ton of bricks. And I realized only after the fact that what he was saying to me was, mommy, am I going to be okay? Am I going to, is this going to, are we going to die? And what I should have done is, you know, and I did it to younger kids that election night. There were some little kids over at our house. And I said to them, okay, listen to me. Your life is going to be the same tomorrow. You're going to wake up in the same bed and go to the same schools. Life is going to be a lot harder for some people, but you, your life is going to be the same. So the question you have to answer as you grow up in this new world is how you want to live your life, given that you have the privilege to live it a certain way. Right. But my son was just basically wanted me to tell him that he wasn't going to die, and I was too busy saying, we're all going to die, to hear that. Yeah, I think, no, that's right. I mean, for a lot of us uh, liberals, I think the thing is at this point to try to, you know, there's obviously concrete action to be taken day to day, but like but to take a longer view of history and be like, okay, here's where we are, what do we do? You right, know, exactly. You know, not, like not, Jews, not, not like, oh, everything is now, this is the apocalypse, because that is a totally defeatist, horrible right. stance to have. You and know? it's I actually mean, interesting, because like, like, Jews, we, we know the worst case scenario, and what's been a kind of exhilarating to me about the past couple of weeks, I don't know about you, but I was at the airports protesting, and what was exhilarating to me was, you know, there weren't really people protesting uh, when the Jews, or you know, like in, in 1933 Hell, in Germany. America was turning boats right. away, yeah. So like just to see that the difference was really, it was such a profound relief because it made me feel like, okay, they might try to do things that are as bad, but we do have a mass of people who will to put our bodies on the line. And that's really important. Yeah. And, I, and it wasn't something I knew because, you know, Comfortable white people in America don't have a long history of putting their their lives and their bodies on the line for people of color, people of different races. And the fact that there's now there are now more people willing to do it, I think, is encouraging. Yeah, I mean, this is a test of kind of how deep the values go. I think people are afraid, you know, that, that thinking that there might be resilience in the structure of, of America is would like that admitting that would somehow be a form of complacence or yeah. normalization. You know, I think it's one thing to rest on your laurels and say America will take care of it. It's another to say there are things we can do if we want right. to. You we know? are the resilience. Yeah, yeah, Our yeah, bodies yeah, yeah. protesting. Yeah, yeah. That's the resilience. Exactly. So All right, next, next one. Next, yeah, next. We've got... It's so, it's so funny. My husband always says, like, nowadays, just as when I wrote Love and Treasure, we'd come home from a dinner party and say, Ayala, not every conversation has to devolve into a discussion of Treblinka. I, I and now he's like, not every conversation has to devolve into a discussion of Trump, but I guess it does, yes. Let's vow not to talk about Trump in okay, the next Okay, in this next one. video. Okay. No okay. Trump in right. this next video. So the next one that we've got... Uh, Bill Nye. I love me some Bill the Nye. The science guy who comes in regularly and answers questions from people all over the world. And this is called Hey Bill Nye, Is Art as Important as Science? So this should be cool. Hi Bill, my name's Theo. I'm 13 years old and I'm a huge fan of your work. I want to know if you think art is important. And if art is important, is it as important as the sciences? Theo! Theo, you got to have art. We have to have art. We have to have science. I will claim that science is the best idea humans have ever had, but I mean, I'm a science educator. I mean, you'd expect that from me. But I listen to music all day. I make up lyrics for songs all day. 
when I make a thing, which I like to do all the time, a tinkerer, I like the thing to look good. And I've done stand-up comedy, telling jokes in a hope, in an effort to get people to think about us, ourselves, our relationships to each other, our society. These to me are all forms of art that I participate in. I shudder to think what my world would be like without other artists contributing. It would just not be nearly as good. You have to have both, but what I encourage everybody is you, can't, you don't want to have one to the exclusion of the other. However, science has affected our society dramatically. Uh, what's the most significant invention ever? Might be a sewer. Without sewers, we would just not have as good a life as we have right now in the developed world. And that's based on science. Roads, cars, this computer, this video interaction that we're having, that's all enabled by science. So this is where I'm going to disagree with Bill Nye. I mean, I, of course I agree with him, yes? Okay. But I actually think it's more than a question of aesthetics. I don't think it's just about your tie looking good or the background looking good. I actually think that art inspires innovation and the desire to create is an artistic impulse that is inextricable from science. I think, like, look, mm -hmm. if you have a bunch of really, really sort of science focused, mathematical focused people who don't who, are, who don't sort of think creatively even about mathematics, you're not gonna get innovation. You're gonna get really good calculation. Like, I feel like yeah. the drive to create is an artistic drive that expresses itself in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the problem, the problem is with the terms, right? right? Because like art, creative problem solving, like you could say it's art. I mean, the problem is that in our brains we categorize. You know, we're right. thinking of art as like a Picasso, right. yeah, and science as you know Elon Musk designing a rocket or something, or or I don't know, right. discovering. We're discovering trying to DNA. avoid talking about Trump. Oh dear, I, I, that's too adjacent to Trump, isn't it? Okay. That's Trump adjacent. We, we, okay, all right. But going back, yeah. So I mean, I I totally agree with that. I mean, I, you know, like science's fundamental impulse is. I guess, curiosity. Right. And trying, you've written some mysteries, like trying to solve mysteries. Solve problems, yeah. problem solving. And but that's also what art is, it's problem solving. In a way, but it also, there's a sort of, um, so I'm about, like later today, um, spoilers, I'm, I'm also talking to Daniel Dennett, who's uh -huh. this like philosopher of mind guy, uh -huh. and he, he talks about um, mystery lovers, and he basically says that he encounters often people who are so in love with mystery that they're scared of science right. because science is going to take the yeah. mystery away. They want know? to prioritize the sort of woo-woo. You know, it's so fascinating <laughs> because, like, first of all, I am a person who, I used to love math. When I was when I was in elementary school, right. I loved yellow pads and calculation because you had an answer, and I loved getting the answer. And um, but after algebra, I completely lost. I like I lost the capacity to do math, and I mm. like I never went much beyond algebra. And I actually, and I have four children who the youngest is like a, has a decent mind for math and science, but the older ones, they love the biological sciences, but beyond that, they, you know, they had to have a lot of bolstering to get through calculus, let's just say. Gotcha. 
So maybe it's a purely defensive mechanism that I want to value the arts uh, <laughs> because, you know, STEM, STEM, STEM. It's like, you know, you, the, the people who are going to have work in this new economy are not my children. They're the, pe they're the engineers and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, science sort of explains to us, like, how the natural world works and how we work at a, like, chemical level and, you know, right. like, biological level. But... You know, the arts, along with philosophy and other things, help us kind of understand all the stuff that's relevant to us in the day to day, like our relationships, how we see ourselves, you know, like without that stuff. I mean, I think art can be amoral too, but totally. art as art and literature tend more to deal in the realms of like empathy, human understanding, Ambiguity. you know, and so forth. Yeah, whereas like science is morally neutral. I mean, like, you can make an atomic bomb, you know. Right. Or power the world. Right. That being said, when Armageddon comes, you want to be with Bill Nye, not with me, because I won't, like, you won't even get, <laughs> I don't even know, know how to, to do, like, right? light yeah. a match. Without a match, I can't make fire. Yeah, so yeah, go yeah. hang out with Bill Nye. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm like you. I mean, I had, I, I also am coming from the humanities and arts side of things, and, like, you, you write in the book that you're, in college, you fulfilled your your science requirement by taking human sexuality. Yeah, the Me evolution too. of sexual behavior. Me too. Right. Exact same. Well, I mean, at NYU, but right. wherever you were. So at Wesleyan. I mean, yeah. that's so pathetic. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's so pathetic. Yeah, yeah. I wish I had taken, like, a human genetics class or something. Yeah. Um, and I tried to make up my kids, like, I'm like, Let. I mean, I'm like any other neurotic Jewish parents. I'm like, STEM, engineering, does anybody want to make an app? Does anybody in this house want to make an app? Because if all you guys are doing is like making beats and writing novels, we're not going to survive to the next generation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially under the current economy that we're not going to talk about. Yeah. That kind of wraps up our time here. So thanks so much for coming in today. Oh, this was so Ayala. much fun. I actually do feel like I had a big think. Yeah, I feel I feel the same way. And um, Ayelet Waldman's book is called A Really Good Day. Is there a subtitle that yeah. I'm forgetting? How microdosing made a mega difference in my mood, my marriage, and my life. Yeah, and it's really good. It's both, you know, her personal experience, but also a fair amount of science and research and history. It's 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 really worth reading, and and I highly recommend it. So, thank you so much. It was so much. a pleasure. And that wraps another episode of Think Again. Uh, next week, we're joined by philosopher of mind, Daniel Dennett, who looks at the whole of evolutionary history to try to explain comprehensively where our minds come from. It's a really fascinating conversation, and I hope you can join us. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.